when I was first in managerial roles in the 90s, I'm not sure anybody would have thanked me for being particularly compassionate. It was get the job done. But actually, I think if you value people as people, then I think you get a lot more back. And I certainly think that's the journey I've been on as we've built relationships with colleagues, built relationships with tenants and understand their perspective. Then I think showing that compassion actually means people give more. Hello, I'm Robert Tame and welcome to Working for Compassion. This podcast explores how using compassion and emotional intelligence can improve people's work lives and create competitive advantage for your business. I'll be asking my guests how we can make the world of work a kinder, more engaging and productive place to be. Tune in to learn compassion tips for yourself and your teams before your people start dropping out. My guest today is Wendy Spinks. Wendy is the commercial director for High Speed One, who own and operate the UK's first section of high speed rail, as well as the stations along the route, including St Pancras International, that connects London to Paris, Brussels and Amsterdam. In the podcast, we discuss how the volume around compassion in the workplace is being turned up, how the Me Too campaign was a catalyst for this shift, and how Wendy uses gardening to help her work-life balance. We talk about how the pandemic has impacted HS1, the difficult conversations held with stakeholders and Wendy's views on the future challenges for hybrid working. Wendy believes transparency is increasing in business and we discuss why that's a good thing and how having more balanced boards in the future will give businesses a different dynamic. As my previous landlord, Wendy was a great supporter of Prime Burger as an independent business that I owned and operated at St Pancras for many years and it was a pleasure to meet up again and have a conversation about compassion in business. Enjoy the show. Wendy, welcome to the Working for Compassion podcast. Hello. It's great to be here. We're in your offices here in King's Place in King's Cross, right in the heart of London. Amazing building here and and just the development around this part of London has been extraordinary and I've been lucky to be a bit part of that having a restaurant in St Pancras previously and obviously working with you through that time. I want to start with how's the quality of your work life at the moment? Well it's definitely different than where it was (laughs) a couple of years ago I guess but but yeah things have changed and we've had to we've had to learn to adapt and it's funny we set ourselves the target this was pre-COVID. We'd set a strategy of working to a more agile way of working and we all get there by 2030. And then two months after us saying that internally and setting that strategy, we were all locked down in, in, in COVID. So we've ended up delivering uh, what, what was our future strategy in somewhat more of an enforced way. Mm. But, but we've learned a lot along the way. And I think generally... There's been a hell of a lot of resilience around how people have adapted to that way of working. We've had to deal with all of the initial trust issues of people thinking, uh, you know, are you working from home completely? And, uh, you know, some of that culturally we've had to tackle with. But, but actually, I think it's been, on the whole, in a positive experience about how us as colleagues have, have all come together and worked through it. 
think. What What have you missed maybe in this time where you're not as together as you have been in the past? I think we've clearly missed the creative element of people literally getting together and problem solving together and working through solutions. Um, it's not that we haven't done that because clearly we've had some big problems to solve during the, the period, but. I just think that level of creativity and that social interaction of being in the office is is much richer than doing it over the phone. That said, or, you know, over Zoom. That said, we've actually learned a lot more about each other because we've seen in their houses, the cats come past, the kids have come in. You know, there's just been a bit more human, personal side to those conversations we ran off for the doorbell and all sorts of stuff that brought your people's lives to the fore as opposed to you just seeing the person you've actually seen a, a broader sense of them so we've missed out on some things but we've learned something um, mm. along the way too I think yeah that's really interesting isn't it that's a question I was going to ask it's we've almost seen people in a more authentic way mm. in some yeah. respects by being in their homes with them, yeah. albeit working, but seeing their environment and their circumstances. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be any lasting effects from that switch? Yeah, I think everybody's talking about a hybrid or an agile way, way of working. And I think if we can find a, a, a balance that balances that flexibility of working from home, as well as the creativity of people being together in an office environment if we can find something that works in that hybrid then I think the change will last I think the challenge is does the hybrid become more difficult to manage than an all-in or all-out yeah I I see that you're right at the epicenter of of some of the suffering that we've seen you're in travel but you also have lots of partners in retail and uh, and the restaurant business which are in your station (laughs) how has hs1 responded to that it's been really tough i mean we can't deny the fact that you know people haven't been traveling you you're mandated to stay at home you've been mandated to not go into the office unless you're an essential key worker but we've kept the railway work running, you know, because key workers have needed to get about and it has been an essential need. So that's had its challenges. And certainly initially when people were trying to find how do we ch- change a workplace or change an environment and make people feel safe and confident to make those essential journeys. So there was a lot of work in, in the early days working through that. And equally, which tenants can open, which can close? How, how do you provide that service to the people that are coming through but equally yeah I mean there's been some very tough conversations but I think the one thing that stood through I think is relationship we've had to have some very difficult conversations in very difficult circumstances but it's just important that we've been able to pick up the phone and have conversations with our tenants we've never been a landlord that that's been in a situation where we sign a lease you pay your rent and we don't talk to you and therefore you know in this particular circumstance more than ever we've been having that dialogue to understand what's the impact we've taken each business on its own merit in terms of what its impact is and how that affects us but you've got to build on those relationships and and work it all through so it's not easy it's not been easy for anybody in in business or or in travel and 
and we're still seeing that you know effect traveling internationally has been even harder than traveling domestically so for Eurostar who have operated most of the year on just five percent of their passenger movement based on prior years it's it's not enough but that's the challenges that they had to to work through we've seen signs we've seen positive signs it's steady steady return to some normality but yeah it's not been easy that's really interesting about those relationships because difficult times bring difficult conversations but maybe transparency as well how do you think the future relationships will be affected by what you've been through do you think that will be a positive Yes, because I think that transparency will come through and just understanding, you know, strategic directions of different businesses, where together the opportunities might be. We've always had a turnover-related relationship, effectively, and therefore it's in both the landlord and the tenant's interest to grow that business. And therefore I think that helps. We've aligned in making that relationship work. We both benefit from the success and therefore it's, it's important to us both and therefore I think that those relationships will remain strong. You've had an interesting career both starting off in retail and then going from gatekeeper yeah. to poacher do they say? So moving over initially as Heathrow Airport which is a massive operation yeah. and then to maybe I'm a little bit biased but I think that the best station in London. Interested by making that kind of jump, that transfer, what influence that's really had on you working with the retailers and the restaurant partners? Hugely. Uh, and I said it, I mean, I was often, I got that comment, poetry come gamekeeper, a lot when I transitioned at Heathrow. But I actually always said it actually means I, my, I've had my feet in their shoes. And I know what a tenant has to do. I know how they have to adapt. And I know how they have to adapt their own unit, even how they train their staff, how they range their stock, how they operate in a very small space for the density of sales that you generate in, in, in those types of environments. And therefore, there's quite a lot of challenge that you have to put back into your own business to a head office function or otherwise to make sure that your needs in that to trade and to trade well in that environment are met. And I totally understood that. And therefore, I always felt that was helpful to navigate internally as a landlord to go, actually, this is not just retailers challenging for challenge's sake. They've got a point. <laughs> Or equally, I also knew that when a tenant said, I can't do that, I'm going, yeah, you can. (laughs) I know you can. And and therefore, it really helped both ways, actually, Mm. just being able to understand things from both sides. And then I think coming from Heathrow to to St Pancras, there's, there's a lot of similarities. So a lot of the small space, high density, customers on the move, a customer whose primary mission is to travel generally and and therefore you're a secondary mission in the customer's eyes. So those things are the same. The big difference for being out in a a rail station for me is you you haven't got that same captive audience. You don't have to buy your coffee just before you're catching. You you can pick up your coffee as you leave the office or as you, if you've gone to the theatre or whatever. You can, there's no um, way of, constraining you to the environment of a station you can shop or eat or go out 
anywhere. And therefore, the operators have to be even better, not only cope with all the constraints of the small spaces and all those challenges, but actually get your service levels so strong that you you win the customer and they, they want to spend in the station as opposed to anywhere else in London. Particularly with all the development that's gone on in King's Cross, then you have a huge amount of really great choice of restaurants and bars and that type of thing. And therefore, the operators in the station actually have to do a really great job to make you spend the money there. And, and that's the, the big difference. It's a, it's a great challenge if you're an operator, but it's the biggest challenge if you're a train station operator, I think. Mm. I think I'd agree. So you're also the chair of Urban Partners and a member of the Camden Women's Forum, local organisations to the station. be interested to hear about them and some of the work you do with those organisations. Urban Partners has been going for quite a number of years now. The area that I think we've probably been most active in is with the next generation. So we all recognise that we've all got offices that are empty in the evening, but it's at the evening where the local kids was trying to do their homework in probably much smaller accommodation than, than they would ideally like to have for good studying opportunity. So we've been doing homework clubs and, and that went from, well, we'll provide space for you to study to actually Eurostar, who was one of the members, going, but we could help you with your friend. And, and, and then Springer Nature decided, because they do a lot of um, publishing and, in, and they've got loads of great scientists work, working with them, they were well, we can help you with this. So we've gradually morphed into a simple task, into adding a bit more value through it. And that's been challenged through COVID, to be honest, and a lot more went remote, as with everything else. But we really feel like we're adding some value back to the community. And one of the hidden, it was an unintended consequence, but a really nice one, was the Eurostar staff, actually, their staff satisfaction was really strong because the employees really valued working for an organisation that was providing that and doing that to, to the next generation. So a real feel-good factor initiative that has you know, added some value to the local community as well. That, that sounds really positive because King's Cross is a very diverse area, although yeah. we've got these penthouse you know, It's got the flats. richest and the poorest, effectively. It, 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 it has, and for the businesses to come together yeah. like that for the local community, yeah. that feels yeah. really positive yeah. and... And that ripple effect for employees in the organisations to get that sort yeah. of uh, positivity from it as well. So, and, and it's interesting you talk about compassion, though, because I think there's actually, through that group, there's a real high level of compassion for people other than yourself and really thinking about those much less off. So we've been doing an initiative. Actually, it was one of the things that we did in the, the Christmas before would have been Christmas 19 and this was working for the homeless in the local area and we collected all sorts of stuff shampoos and toothbrushes all sorts of stuff that each of the offices all collected and actually one of the local schools actually did a lot of work in in handing them out too so we really did it collaboratively with the with the schools and it just really showed how much interest there was in these businesses to go Actually, I work here, I walk past, I've got a job, but I'm walking past people on the street 
as I'm going to work, what can I do? And it was a real practical step. You know, we can't fix the grander problem of homelessness, but there was, it wasn't that we couldn't do anything. So, so that's what we did. Well, that sounds positive, and let's hope that picks up when things mm. really get, mm. get back to normal. We've touched on the word compassion. That's what this podcast has at its heart. What's your understanding of the word compassion, Wendy? I mean, I think it's, a, it's just about showing you care. I think, for me, and showing that you can understand things from a, from another perspective, because I think that's that's often what we, you know, there's a real danger that if you don't, then then you're a bit blinkered to the world. Compassion and its relevance in the workplace, because some people may view it as a soft word, and is that the right thing for business? What's your view on that? I think when I was first in managerial roles, I guess in the 90s, I'm not sure anybody would have thanked me for being particularly compassionate. It was get the job done. But actually, I think if you value people as people, then I actually think you get a lot more back. And I certainly think that's certainly the journey I've been on as we've built relationships with colleagues, built relationships with tenants and understand their perspective then I think showing that compassion actually means people give more, in my experience. Well, that's interesting you say that, that I started my career in the 90s and it feels really very different. Mm. What are the influences that have changed that, do you think? I don't know, really, other than maybe we pushed ourselves to the limit in the 90s. I don't know, if I'm honest. I mean, we all worked super hard and, you know, and, and drove at it, but did we really have the energy... We were just working hard. I don't know. Whereas I actually think there's maybe just the different ways we work. We've learned to to adapt, I think, just to, 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 to different styles, but really recognising that people give of their best when you really understand them. But, but equally, that they also understand the business. I think we're far more transparent in business with what's going on in our business than... I seem to recall back in the back in the 90s as well. So, you know, we've got our graduates in the business here and and, and they hear all the briefings. They're hearing everything and the whole of our ethos is, you know, is to be transparent with people about what's going on. And I think that transparency and that openness actually works both ways we know a lot more about our people and they know a lot more about our business it almost feels like we've become a bit more relaxed doesn't it even the way yeah. we dress yeah, actually, uh, yeah to go true. to work there's you not know. many with a tie on these days so. no no and and in a way you know coming back to what we were talking earlier about getting to know people a bit more via zoom etc it, it it just feels that the many masks that maybe people wore before, those masks yeah. are coming off a little bit and yeah. there's some positive benefits from, yeah. from, from that. There are still some organisations out there, you read about them in the press, you know, 100 hours, working weeks, etc. What do you think holds those organisations back from bringing more compassion into their workplace? I, I think there's maybe a bit of competition and threat of competition in there. There. They're wanting the best. They're trying to attract the best candidates. They're trying to pay them the best salaries. And then when they're there, they go, 
you know, I need to extract the most value, but I'm, I'm just not convinced that that is going to drive the best out of people. Maybe it will, but over a very short period of time, over the long term, I don't think it will. And I actually think that I think the next generation coming through will have a different approach. Mm. I think they generally have a different approach. They've been brought up on tech. Back in, back in the 90s, I think the first time I was an area manager, I had a pager. You know, and I, when my pager went off, I had to go and find a way, get into a store to ring up, to ring head office to find out what, what the conversation was all about. The tech has enabled so much, and we should let it be, make us be a bit more agile, a bit more flexible, you know, a, a bit more compassionate. Because if you don't, you could be a slave to it, and that can cause pressure if you're always on. I mean, we were having a conversation the other day that said, oh, do you know when we switched from Blackberries, that red light on a Blackberry that just flashed away, wherever you were, you saw that red light and you were like, oh, there's another email. Oh, do I need to do anything about that one? Whereas actually, now you can turn those notifications off. You're a bit more in control and you can deal with them when you want to deal with them. Even that red light saying danger, yes. almost subliminally. <laughs> yes, not quite. And, and it's a bit where, you know, we've made a point of putting on our e- work emails that says, you know, we're responding to your email because we work flexibly. I'm not necessarily expecting an urgent response. I'm not, you know, so I might write an email on the train on the way home and I'm not expecting my team to respond immediately if there was something that I did need them urgent for, I would call them. And, and therefore, I sort of shifts that culture of I don't need to respond to every email like immediately. And just actually allows people to, to, to work in a way that works for them. And I guess that's another thing that we've learned in COVID, that different people work in different ways. We've had and we've learned that some people, the minute the, we got the, the office COVID secure, they were like, I'm going to go and work in the office because I sort of need to. And different people have realised different things. People are like, I just need to go out in the morning and feel like I've walked into another building because for me, that's me, I'm at work. Going to sit in at my dining table or something doesn't really do it for me. I need to get to the office. And then there are others that go, you know, I'm happy doing a bit in the evening after the kids have gone to bed, but actually I'm going to take them to school. I'm going to do the school run. I ain't going to start till you know, till 10. And and I think tech and everything else has just allowed that to to happen and therefore there's just a different approach. Yeah, and it allows those individual uh, preferences to come out and they're going to be happier. Don't shoehorn us all into a nine-to-five. Yeah. Because, you know, we do, we all, we have our night owls, we have our people that are up at the crack of dawn and and, and work best at that point. So why not let that happen as opposed to forcing everybody into into a window? It's another element of diversity in, it, in its own way, really. Yeah. You know, it doesn't just have to be about people of colour. No. It, it can be, you know, night owls, yeah. evening owls, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and that's got to be a more effective thing for people and hopefully businesses get the benefit yeah. from that as, exactly. as the individuals yeah. do as well. You, you touched on younger people. Do you think they're more discerning these days on who they decide to go and work for? I think so. I think they want to work for a company who is going to not only treat them in a way that respects what they have to offer, but also does good in the world. So I think whether it be your green credentials as an organisation or 
the, you know, the wider CSR profile of what you're doing socially or in the community in which you're working or serving. I think they do expect more of businesses will walk with their feet. I think they will choose to work for people that are of a similar mindset to them. And if you interview people, I'm not sure whether you do, do you get those type of questions when you know, you're interviewing an applicant and they have a chance to, yep. to ask some questions? They're asking yeah. a bit more. Most definitely. And, and one of the questions that we often ask is, you know, how much do they know of HS1? Because we're conscious that HS1 is probably more of a B2B brand and those in the railway know it because everybody else would know St Pancras, for example, but not necessarily HS1. And, you know, and so we always ask people how much, you know, they've done. Um, and interesting to see what they recall from having looked at our web. And that is often the people element. It's often, I've watched your video, I've, you know, I, I, I understand the ethos of HS1. I've seen that you've been recognised through the, the investors in people and the, the, the well-being recognition and that comes back so that gets played out in an interview so it's obviously important to people because of all the things in their research for for whatever they've been doing for however many roles they're interviewing for that recall is quite strong Mm. so I think people do care. For organisations your knowledge of organisations what should they be working on to help improve employees lives? It's around how the whole well-being piece. So it's being clear about what it is that they need to do from a work perspective. And this, to point you raised earlier on, this isn't about us being soft. We've still got, a, you know, absolutely some real imperative business objectives of which we will work hard together to deliver them. But I think we have to help them be clear with that, but equally on you know, the wellbeing side and, and make sure that we're caring about what they're doing from a, 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 a wellbeing perspective. So we have a couple of mornings a week where there are PT sessions. I mean, we've, they've had to be doing it virtually um, in lockdown, but we've maintained that. We've done lots of regular one-to-ones with our workforce to ch- just to check in with them. Um, and, and just make sure their, their mental well-being is very strong too. So there's a lot that we do that we put in place, either formally or informally, to, to make sure that, that, that people are cared about, but also so that they can perform for the business. And would you say you've seen rising cases of people suffering with mental health issues at work, anxiety, etc.? Yeah, and I think it manifests itself different in different people. And that's the biggest thing, I think, that people learn. Because you want, and it's the hardest thing, actually, for managers to, to, to sort of get to grips with as well. Because they, you, you can all relate to how it feels to you. But, it, but you have to consider, actually, somebody else might be feeling very different about the same circumstance and therefore it's about making sure that the dialogue and the channels of communication are there so that people feel actually it is okay for me to say I I am anxious about that or I'm that's causing me some stress and I think you've got to put the mechanisms in place so that people feel it is okay to say that. How do you do that Wendy? I think some of it is by being quite clear about our strategic you know, direction of the business and that actually we want a very well-stimulated, motivated set of people, but that we support them. So we have a people strategy and we set a lot of that out in there. 
But actually then it's about us having that regular dialogue. And so everybody, we're a very flat-lined managerial structure anyway, but it does mean that we're encouraging through, through the regular one-to-ones to have not just a conversation about how are you getting on with what you've got on work-wise, but actually how are you? And really just focusing in on how are you as an individual rather than somebody doing a job. So regular check-ins are quite important. <coughs> very, very important. And we stepped up. So over during COVID, we would have had a monthly team meet. That went to weekly as a whole business. And even within my own team, we were having calls for four days a week, only for 30 minutes, but they were just... Nine o'clock, we would get you know everybody together, uh, and they would be quick calls you know around you know how is everybody? It's just and, and in the early days that was just actually putting a little bit and as we talk about flexible working a, a little bit of structure in that actually meant okay let's just get everybody you know in a day and, and certainly in the early weeks where you know all the days were were sort of blurring in. into one and you read a little bit about sort of brain fog in lockdown and so this was just a little bit of getting everybody together and if somebody was like oh this is getting tough and then somebody was able to pick somebody else up or you could spot that somebody didn't quite sound themselves and therefore somebody would then go and pick up the phone and we were very mindful of people who lived on their own as well actually during that period and, and, and would reach out more frequently to those who were living alone because then mm. equally their, some of their social conversation might have been, been a little bit more restricted than those um, living in a household. So it sounds like communication really stepped up during that time and that an effective strategy to look out for people and, yep. and keep in tune. That sounds good. Really like to talk about compassion stories and, and any examples you've got. Is there any stories where you receive compassion at work directly from somebody and, and the kind of impact that might have had on you? I mean, I've, I, for me personally, I've always found that there's always been somebody, wherever I've worked, there's always been somebody that... And, and a, I don't know necessarily if I think back how, you know, I think it was more of an, an informal sort of meeting of minds, really, rather than anything formal or structured. But there was always somebody that would help. And, and, they, and they're either there to, to help you, either from a, a pure work perspective, but also just to that watching eye of... And back in the 90s, it was, you still working? Or one level, there was those levels of conversations. And actually, when I, and it was only that as I, as I developed through my career that I look back and go, actually, there needed to be more of that type of conversation. Because that, that really sometimes, it was a bit of a work-up call for me because I was burning myself out. And, and that, I think, was, was a help. A helpful prompt, really, and one that I will, you know, grateful for the, the, those conversations. But, but yeah, it, sometimes it, it's the real little bit of somebody saying to you, "Are you still doing that?" And you're like, "Oh, yeah, I, I am." And then you and, and you go, "Actually, could you have done that work differently? If you worked differently, did it need to take mm. that extra time, or did you have to work on the, the weekend?" And actually, no, I didn't. I just need to change what I do. Yeah, so it's like an objective point of view, really. Somebody just looking over you, just maybe you get too close to it. 
Yeah, and, and I think somebody else, sometimes somebody else saying something, you probably deep down in here know it yourself already, but you're not allowing yourself to necessarily a- a- admit that. But somebody else saying that is the spark, I think, that just goes, actually, they're right. And then you can then take control of yourself and go, I'm the one who can do something about it. But thank you for that spark. I can now take some action. And, and I think that's the, the point that people just, again, building a relationship, getting to know your colleagues so that you know them enough that when you, you can say something without it being seen as being, you know, offensive, but something that actually they can really value later on and, and go, actually, that was what I needed. <laughs> and they're coming from a caring yes. point, point of yes. view. And, exactly. and, and I was talking to somebody yesterday who made a good point about people often know their jobs pretty well, but yes. sometimes they're lacking in their own self-awareness. Yes. And, and I thought that was a really good point. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that maybe organisations need to encourage because the more self-aware you are, you may have yeah. realised that, yeah, I am getting a bit burnt out here because, oh, yeah, I'm working every weekend. You yeah. Know? yeah, 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 yeah. And it's about people equally being able to... I always think we're encouraging managers to give feedback, but we've also got to encourage them to take it as well. Absolutely. There's a Gallup employment survey that is recently published, 2021, and 97% of managers think that they're a great manager. Yeah. Now, that that probably is... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you never stop learning, though, do you? And I think that's the, that, that's the thing. That if people take that view of I've been there, done that, I'm, I, I know everything, you don't. And I think you just have to you know, remain open to that constant learning. Do you think humility has made it into the business dictionary uh, <laughs> in recent years? Probably not, but actually maybe COVID will... I think some of the legacy of COVID maybe will mean that business people think differently. How do you manage yourself? You've been through some very pressurised times in the last 18 months. How have you managed through that period? I think everybody finds their own way of switching off in in some ways. And and at one level, when when your work stuff is literally in the house, the switching off can be, in some ways, a bit harder than... You've not walked out of the office, literally your office is, is at home. But for me personally... That's been out in the garden. Um, I, you can't control nature, so my trial and error style of, uh, of, of, of gardening it is good fun, and it's, com- it's a complete switch off and a relaxation to me. That's the, a key effort for me. And, I, and I, I know that I can get, in the winter, it's much harder to spend as much time out there. Really, nothing's growing, and it's, it's in that space. But I feel that. I feel like I, I haven't got as much of my my sort of switch off so yeah I go and do a bit of cooking or something to replace it that way but but yeah it's that for me it's the outdoors gardening piece and the challenge of it because you can plant the seeds but it's not a guarantee anything's going to grow an amateur gardener yeah no I'm complete an amateur (laughs) I'm a complete and utter trial and error I'm getting better but something that I've turned uh, to a little bit in the last year because I've had a bit more time and Mm. it's really rewarding and Maybe exciting, pushing the boundary a bit, but yeah. uh, when things come up that didn't look as if they were coming up, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it, it's good. And any self-compassion practices, have you ever tried any meditation or mindfulness or anything um, like that? No, I, I haven't particularly, but I, but I am conscious of, of my own 
space and my own time and that's what you know I will go out into the garden and do that or I will literally walk you know and even if it's just around the block sometimes and sometimes if I if I've had a call that, that, that that's been you know even at work and it's just been ugh, it's been a really heavy brainy morning I'll just go for a walk around the block um, and literally just to get out it's I'm not looking at a screen it's a change of scenery I'm walking it's exercise it's fresh air I will just do that it can be 10 or 15 minutes but that for me works but uh, but I think it is about finding what works for you and over the time we've sort of encouraged other people who've been struggling to to try different things because you know as we said earlier it different things work for different people and it's just recognizing mm. that but I think the the earlier you recognise what does do that, the better, I think. Thinking about leaders, is there anybody that really inspires you that seems to be leading with compassion or with this real common humanity? I think a lot of leaders are having to think that way, to be honest. I don't think there's any particularly one person that stands out, but I think the, the dialogue is just increasingly coming through. Whether all of the the other issues, the Me Too campaigns, all of the other stuff on there has really just brought to fore all of the respect and, and, and therefore compassion that comes with that. So, no, I mean, I, ju- I just think generally that volume is being turned up generally, which I think is, is a healthy thing and it's a real positive thing. And, and, I, and I do think that the businesses that take it seriously will be the businesses of the future. What do you think the single thing could be done to, to create a more compassionate work life for people? I think including the, the, the people more is key, whether that be through forums, and it, it will depend on the, the sort of size and scale of businesses, I, I, I guess, but whether there's a listening group, so people are an employee forum or something where people are genuinely listening to, to what people are saying. But also maybe, I just think, the board makeup as well. And I think, dare I say, if there were more balanced board people at that, at that level, you know, getting the, the male-female at board level, I think brings a different dynamic too. And whether... There's equally representation through there of just hearing from different people and, and seeing how that business plays out, I think, could really make make a difference. So diversity yeah. uh, in many ways. Is, yeah, exactly. Is... I think so. It's just that all voices are heard. And, and then I think people then start to realise that people are working as individuals against a common business need, but they're working as individuals and therefore they've all got something to bring. This is not about everybody being treated the same in some ways. I think it's recognising that different people have different needs. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. So, Wendy, if if people wanted to find out more about HS1 or about you, where where would you point them to? Our website, highspeed1.co.uk, or there's a lot going on on the St Pancras social media channels. Thanks very much for your time. It's been a pleasure to reconnect, so thank you. 
Thank you. This podcast also has a website. The address is www.workingforcompassion.com and that's the number four, not the letter four. On the website, there's more information about how compassion, mindfulness and emotional intelligence is influencing the world of work. You'll also find my story detailing my journey to date and what has motivated me to start this podcast and website. You can also sign up to my newsletter and that will update you when I release new podcasts. It'd be great if you could do that. So why not take a look at www.workingforcompassion.com and yet that's the number four, not the letter four. I'm going to be releasing lots of new episodes with more great guests over the next few weeks. So please sign up to the newsletter and until next time, go well.